Thanks for joining us for this week's podcast and being a part of our church family here at New Hope. Our senior pastor, Dr. Benji Kelly, is currently leading us through the entire Bible in a series called The Story. Now here's this week's podcast. Now some of you people are just enjoying the videos too much. Did the artist just sketch John the Baptist with polka-dotted underwear? And how about the baptisms, dude? Bam! I mean, we get all nice about it, man. We say we baptize you in the name of the Father and Son and the whole. I, th- I think we're to change it, man. Just bam, 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 bam. I mean, we've baptized a couple thousand people in that baptistry. That would make it go a, a little bit faster, right? Jesus changed everything 2,000 years ago. Can I get an amen? amen. And Jesus still changes everything today. And he changed the course of human history in three years. 2,000 years ago, he lived in ministry for three years, and the ripple effect of his life is still reverberating out across the errors of humanity. It's why Jesus forever gets my support, my vote, my allegiance. I shall never forget my first pastor, Phil Jones, reading for me what I'm getting ready to read from you. It struck me, it pierced right to my heart, and it just makes unbelievable sense. I'm talking about the write-up entitled, One Solitary Life. Written by the man, Dr. James Allen Francis, almost a century ago, 1926, Dr. Francis said this. Jesus was born in an obscure village, a child of a poor peasant couple. He worked in a carpentry shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He never visited a big city. He didn't write a book. He never held an office. He had no family. He owned no home. He did none of the things that we think of when we think of greatness. And yet 19 centuries have come and gone. And he is the central figure of the human race. And all the armies that have ever marched. And all the navies that have ever sailed. And all the parliaments that have ever sat, and all the kings that have ever reigned, and all the presidents that have ever been elected, put together, have not affected life on this earth as much as that one man. Come on. Amen. 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 And if you're just kind of skeptical and you're just checking out Christianity, listen, you are so welcome here. We are so glad you are here. But even if you're not a believer, you study world history, you study human history, and there is absolutely no denying that the one solitary life of Jesus Christ changed everything. And change is what everyone's looking for. Change is what you're looking for. Turn on the TV, and the truth is, that is what you hear. People are wanting change. Watch the presidential debate tomorrow night, 
and you will hear both candidates talking about the ways in which they plan, plan to change things. Politicians say they won't change. Police officers want people to change and rightfully respect and follow commands. Others want police officers to stop shooting people if they are unarmed and not a threat. Business owners want people to stop looting and destroying the very businesses they have spent their entire lives trying to build. The struggle is real. And people won't change. And the same is true when Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. If you think living today in the 21st century in this world is tough, and as I told you last week, it's tough down here. But I would let you know that when Jesus was born into that context 2,000 years ago, it was brutal. To live in the land with the beast of Rome was no walk in the park. As a result, the Jewish people, as you know, you've been studying the Old Testament with me, they just came out of captivity. They've entered back into the promised land. They're having to live under the reign of Rome. Rome was no joke. You crossed Rome and you died. Often with your head off or, some of you might not know this, or crucified on a cross. Jesus wasn't the only one crucified on a cross. The great historian Josephus tells that you would look down the Roman roads in the days of Jesus and you would see crosses lined up down the roads in our mind, kind of like telephone poles with people crucified. The only difference is Jesus was the only one who got off the cross and the Father raised him from the dead. But no doubt, no doubt they would crucify you off with your head. Or here was the third way in which they would kill you. They would tie you to a stake. And they would burn you alive and you would actually serve, if you will, as a light pole in Rome. And so the context in which Jesus stepped into, people were desperately looking for change. Not only were they looking for change, they were praying that a political Messiah would come on the scene and rescue them. They were hoping and praying that this political Messiah would come in and embrace the way of politics. The way of politics is still the same today as it was back then. Politics today basically means power and position. Power and position. And they wanted Change. Now, if you just look to the American context, fast forward 2,000 years, here we are, 21st century. Politics raging all around us. Racial tension raging all around us. People are still looking for change. There's always been this never-ending desire for change. And the truth is, as I talked about last week, we look at the events of this world. And who would have ever thought last week when I said... We just lived through probably the worst summer ever in modern history, and I tried to build my case, and if you missed it again, go to the Resource Center. Who would have ever thought Charlotte would break out just a few days later? And it just appears to be one thing after another, and we have this proclivity for just growing comfortably numb and putting walls around our hearts. And the truth is, the very same question they were asking back then, we have a tendency to ask right now, where do we put our hope in such times of uncertainty? Where do we ground ourselves in these kinds of times? The other question might be this with an election coming up. What political path would the Messiah choose? Hello. 
When Jesus stepped on the planet Earth 2,000 years ago, make no mistake about it, they were looking for a political messiah. And the question they were asking themselves over and over and over again is, when he comes, what side will he be on? In other words, using our language, what side of the aisle is Jesus on? Right? When he comes, where will he land? Who will he be with? So I want to walk you through some of the sides of the aisle, as it were, that existed in Jesus' day. Some of these are going to ring a bell for those of you who know the New Testament. Others of you, you're going to want to write these down because, by the way, after I explain these to you, you're going to be able to read the Gospels, particularly Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so much better because you're going to understand these political groups. They were religious groups, but they were political groups. Multiple political groups during Jesus' time in your teaching notes. Here we go. Number one, the zealots. Read the New Testament, you'll stumble upon this group called the Zealots. They were an extremist group. And they were wanting to bring about change by any means necessary. Have you ever met a Zealot? (laughs) Maybe you are a Zealot. Welcome. We're a church that exists for all people. Even the Zealots. Zealots were extremists. And they had convinced themselves that when the Messiah came, the political Messiah, he would be on their side. Zealots were known for saying things like this in the original language. Desperate times require desperate measures. Zealots were known, true, that they would be in a crowd of Roman soldiers. And if a zealot saw a Roman soldier, there was such hostility, it was not uncommon for a zealot to grab a knife or a sword, bam, kill the Roman soldier and try to skirt away in the crowd. Zealots were convinced God would be on their side because they were extreme. Second group I would tell you about that you'll stumble upon in the New Testament is a group called the Essenes. A group called the what? Essenes. Now, they took a very different path, by the way. The Essenes were those who basically said, you know what? We're sick and tired of the societal slip. We're sick and tired of the way in which this old world is going. And so the Essenes would would pull away from society. The Essenes lived in the mountains, if you will, of first century Palestine. They withdrew. They resisted all forms of modern technology. They, and I don't know if you know this, by the way, North Carolina, as the state, the state in the Union, has more Essenes per population than any other state in the country. The 60 Minutes did a special on this, by the way, about three months. I happened to see it. Showing you, I don't know if you realize this, but in North Carolina and even in the hills of South Carolina, there are lots of Essenes. They, they go away and they, they withdraw from everything. So if you're an Essene, welcome. Though you're probably not here. You've withdrawn. You're living down in a trailer by the river, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Essenes. Here's another group that you found in the biblical times. Oh, by the way, before I move on, who who knows of a, a biblical character that we're very familiar with who was an Essene? Any guesses? Any guesses? Any guesses? I I heard it. John the Baptist. John the Baptist was an Essene. And where they found the Qumran scrolls in 1967, if I'm not mistaken, they found it in the Essene community. Here's the third group you'll stumble upon, political group in the New Testament. It's the Pharisees. We've all heard of the Pharisees. The Pharisees 
were those who loved to legislate righteousness. The Pharisees were those who loved laws. God had given them the Ten Commandments. They decided that was not enough, and so they created and invented all these laws. They loved to heap laws and religious obligations and duties on people. They loved to put people on a guilt trip. By the way, they got on the last nerve of Jesus. He couldn't stand the Pharisees, and the Pharisees couldn't stand him. But the Pharisees were convinced that when Jesus returned or when Jesus came the first time that he was going to be on their side. So, if you're a Pharisee, welcome to New Hope Church. We're so glad you are here. Seriously. Final group I'll tell you about is called the Sadducees. The what? The Sadducees. The, Sadduce the Sadducees were a group that did not believe in the afterlife. Now, I'm going to give you a way in which you'll always remember this. You're never going to forget this from this moment on, okay? The Sadducees did not believe in the afterlife. In other words, they believed this life was all there was. Here's how you'll always remember that. Because they didn't believe in the afterlife, they were sad, you see. <laughs> I didn't think you'd quite enjoy it that much, but hey... <laughs> So the question that they were all asking when Jesus stepped into this, this environment was, what side is the political Messiah going to be on? Now, let me just slow down right now and, and, and say this for the record. What I'm about to say to you is the most important thing I'm going to say to you all day long. So lean in and don't miss this. When they asked the question, whose side is Jesus going to be on what you need to know is that Jesus would not be on any of their political sides. He refused to be in any of those parties. And the same is true today. Jesus won't be pigeonholed into the Republican Party. He won't be pigeonholed into the Democratic Party. He won't be pigeonholed into the Libertarian Party. Jesus is not on a side because he is the side. He is the top. He is the bottom. He is the left. He is the right. And he refuses to be placed into a man-made construct of American politics to which some of you that will aggravate like crazy some of you will lose some sleep over that but I would like to offer a paradigm shift for many of you today many of you have been sold a bad bag of goods and you've received it hook, line, and sinker. I want to give you a paradigm shift today to help you understand and think about the tricky days in which we live. To think about the political season that is upon us. But the truth is Jesus wasn't on the side of the zealots. The truth is Jesus wasn't on the side of the Essenes. He wasn't on the side of the Pharisees. And he wasn't on the side of the Sadducees. Jesus came and brought a new way. Now, don't confuse me and don't misquote me and don't mishear me. I am not saying that Jesus was not political. That would be a poor reading of Scripture. Jesus was very political. He just wasn't political in the sense that they wanted him to be. Make no mistake about it, the things that Jesus said got him in a heap of hot water. 
because he was political, but not in their way. Jesus was crucified. Never forget this. He was crucified as an insurrectionist to Rome. It's what frustrated people about Jesus. They couldn't pin him down. They couldn't pigeonhole him into any of these political containers, and neither can we. It is what frustrated people, but watch this. It is what drew people to Jesus because people knew that true change doesn't lie in the hands of humanity. Hello. Just like you know deep inside your soul. That true change, I'm talking about eternal change, will never come from those cats in Washington. There's only one who truly changed the trajectory of human history. There's only one who changes today, and that is Jesus. And yet when he came, they were all trying to get him. You can turn in your Bibles if you want, or you can just listen along. Think of John chapter 6. You guys remember John chapter 6? In John chapter 6, Jesus is there and the crowds start growing. This is where Jesus fed the 5,000. And what we know from, uh, from study is that we're really talking about 15,000 people because they didn't count the women and the children. Jesus is on the side of the mountain, remember? He takes the, the loaves and the fish. He multiplies them. There's a miracle. And he feeds about 15,000 people. Now step into the Bible, because as you start to read the Bible and you look at it through this political lens that I'm talking to you about today, you're going to start to see things you've never seen before. Jesus starts to do this miracle. His disciples gather around him. They're like, ooh, this is good. You just fed 15,000 people. They're thinking, this must be the national convention. He's our man. He's the political Messiah we've been waiting for. And yet we stumble upon this verse in verse 15 out loud together. Ready? Go. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Do you see it? They wanted him to be their king. They wanted him to be their political Messiah, but Jesus would have absolutely nothing to do with it. You know why? Because the platform that Jesus initiated, what Black Eyed Peas asked us last Sunday in church, you're like, what you talking about? If you weren't here, we had Black Eyed Peas up in the house last week. Not really, but in a, in a video. Remember they asked what? Oh, you guys are amazing. Where's the love? Jesus is the love. The politic that Jesus initiated was a platform of love. Jesus was a new platform. And so they gathered around him and they start thinking, ooh, ooh, this is his convention. Fast forward, if you will, from John chapter 6. Let's just kind of make our way through Scripture. Go to the end of the Gospels. Remember the triumphal entry? Remember Jesus comes into Jerusalem? They had read the prophetic text in the Old Testament. They thought if John 6 was the, the national convention, they thought the triumphal entry was the inauguration of their political Messiah. They thought Jesus, get an image of this. They thought Jesus was going to come into Jerusalem with war attire on. Shield and swords and helmet. 
They heard the Old Testament text. They thought Jesus was going to come riding in on a stallion. <laughs> How did Jesus come into Jerusalem? Flopping along on the back of a donkey. Do you see the contrast? He was, he was turning their world. He was turning their politics upside down, or as I've been saying lately, right side up. It was a reversal. The politics of this world are about power and position. The politics of this world are about upward mobility. Jesus is about downward mobility. Jesus embodied for us a love. Jesus embodied for us a politic of servanthood. Jesus embodied for us that the first will be last and the last will be first. Hello. And when you take that kind of and I'm intentionally calling it this, a politic of love, of service, of humility. When you take that, come on, you can see a church that looks like you look right now. When you place Jesus in the center, not a Republican agenda, not a Democrat agenda. When you put Jesus in the center of a church and we practice the politic of love, it allows us to see a church where black folk worship with white folk and brown folk and yellow folk. And you've got rich worshiping beside poor. And you've got folks on this side of the tracks worshiping with folks on this side of the tracks. And you've got University of North Carolina grads worshiping with Duke grads and NC State grads worshiping with NC Central and you see the body of Christ can I tell a story y'all just went there <sighs> my daughter my daughter love my daughter my, she, so some of you, all of you asking me all the time how you doing how you doing I'm doing alright I miss her terribly you're like dude it's only been five weeks I know um, maybe it's been more than five weeks but I miss her but, but we're doing good we're doing good but last Sunday Last Sunday, she came to church here, and, and she's here today, too. And she came to church, and um, her truck broke down, so I had her truck in the shop, and I got it fixed. And if you're new, you just need to know, uh, our firstborn child is a girl, beautiful girl named Anna Grace. She's just the apple of my eye, cream in my coffee, all that good stuff. Well, I went to Duke, and Anna Grace uh, has gone to that other school a long way away. Um, she, she, she went to the University of North Carolina. But, um, y'all calm down. <laughs> but, um, so last Sunday, she came to church here, and I'm like, baby, your truck's ready. I said, let's go get your truck. And so after church, we got in the car together, and, and we went to get her truck. And her truck was in a shop over there on 15501 near Duke. And so um, when, when I got her truck, I'm not going to lie about this, I thought, I'm going to take her to lunch, and I'm going to take her to Duke because she needs, she needs some of that stuff to still just kind of fall on her as we go to the campus. <laughs> and, um... So we're, we're, we get the truck, we go to Duke, we're walking through Duke campus. I'm taking her to lunch on Duke. I, I went to school there. And we're not even on the campus five minutes. And my lovely, beautiful, smart daughter looks at me and says, Dad, I'm not going to lie to you. I think I already hate this place. <laughs> really, Anna Grace? But when you take Jesus, come on, and you put him in the center of who we are, 
He is the only thing that can break down the barriers of hostility that exist between ethnic groups. He's the only thing that can break down the barriers of hostility, as silly as it sounds, between universities, rich, poor, black, white. Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus allows us to love all people. Jesus will allow us to pursue him and put a politic of love on this planet and if I might say so myself that is what the world is desperately looking for here's here's what I'm kind of asking you to think through and I wish you could see what I see the wheels are turning the politics of western civilization has just sunk so deep into who you are but perhaps the answer to our political problems is not a political solution Maybe Jesus and his politics of love is the ultimate solution to the political problems we face. To which some of you, I'm just going to keep it real for a moment, to which some of you are sitting there going, yeah, sounds like something a preacher would say. Jesus. Like you went to, you know, you went to Sunday school. Didn't matter what the question was in Sunday school. If you just answered Jesus, you got the answer right. <laughs> you know, you know, dude, you, Jesus, you got a sticker on your way home. <laughs> it doesn't negate the fact that it's still true. Jesus is the solution to the problems of this world. Again, don't, don't misquote me. I'm not saying Jesus wasn't political. Oh, no, 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 no. He just introduced a new politic. And it was a politic of love. Think about the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, you got it in your mind. You know it. Many of you said it growing up as a kid. We say it. In fact, we're going to say it at the end of this service. We hear these words and we think, oh, it's just the Lord's Prayer. No, 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 no. These were political uh, words. When Rome heard these words, oh my. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not the kingdom of Rome. Not the will of Rome. Your kingdom, your will be done on earth as it is. Where? Three things I want to just give you to apply. We talked a few weeks about application. You might be thinking, how in the world do I apply this? This is hurting my head to just think about this. Here, number one, pray for our country and the political climate ahead of us. Pray for our country. Pray for the candidates. Pray for the democratic process. And guard your heart in the midst of it all. If you're not careful, listen to me, I said this a few weeks ago, it's just worth repeating. If you're not careful, this political season will cause you to hate people. Guard your heart. Number two, try to discern and vote for the candidate whose values most align with the Bible. Last week, man, last week, somebody walked up to me. It happens every Sunday. They walked up to me on the way out. Great people, I love these people. And they said, you just need to tell them to vote the Bible. 
I thought. All right. What does that mean? Like, what does that mean? Like, like how, is it that easy? No. And as I've told you, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. Some pastors do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to preach the word of God to you, and I'm going to keep pointing you to Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, crucified on a cross for you to forgive your sins. I'm not going to tell you who to vote, but if I had to try to push you in one direction, because after they said that, I thought, that doesn't really make any, anything any easier. But I did think this. You know what the truth is? We should be, as people of God, thinking about and trying to discern what candidate and their values most align with the Bible. And I will tell you, with these two, <laughs> that is not an easy feat. That's why all of you are like laughing right now. It's, it's, it's hard this year. But still pray. Still discern. Still read the Bible. Still, still think about these things. And here's the third thing. Stake all of your hope, your dreams, your passion, and your life's work. Not in an earthly political state, but rather a heavenly kingdom of love. Which, by the way, is grace and truth. It's not just grace. It's not just warm fuzzies. It's grace and truth. A heavenly kingdom of love on earth as it is in heaven. The political process, a few more things for you to just write down and think about. And then I want to highly recommend a book for those of you who are very interested in this subject. Write this down if it's not in your teaching notes. The political process is not the most effective way to bring about societal change. That's going to be disappointing for some of you. Some of you are going to be on the highest high if your candidate gets elected in November. Or you're going to be on the lowest low if he or she doesn't. And I'm going to be over here in the corner just reminding you. The political process is not the most effective way to bring about societal change. True societal change comes ultimately through Jesus and his kingdom politic of love. That's where true societal change comes from and if this is a subject that just interests you and you just can't get enough of this can I highly recommend a book to you by the title the rise of early Christianity write it down the rise of early Christianity it was written by a man named Rodney Stark Rodney Stark was not a Christian when he wrote the book he was a professor of sociology and comparative religions at the University of Washington. He tracked Christianity in the first 300 years of its existence. Now keep in mind, in the first 300 years of Christianity, they didn't have a political vote. They didn't have a bill of rights. They were stiff-armed and kept out of the political system. Yet, in 300 years... They radically changed the landscape of planet Earth. Watch this. In 300 years, they didn't overturn Rome, which is what the Jewish people wanted them to do. The church didn't overturn Rome. 
They didn't overthrow Rome. You know what they did? They converted Rome. They converted Rome to the gospel. To which you might be saying, how'd they do that? I'm glad you asked. In those days, abortion was rampant. In those days, infanticide was rampant. Big word. You know that word, infanticide? You know that? That word means to, to, to kill or abandon a child by the age of one. So in those days, if Rome or the people of Rome would have a child, usually a, a, a girl, often was the case women, I hate to, hate to break it to you. Or if they had a deformed child, hard for us to imagine, but just think about this. Or if they had a child with special needs, you know what Rome would do? They would carry the child out into the wilderness or the desert and abandon the child where the child would die. You know what the church said? Oh, no. Not on our watch. And so the church starts saying, bring the children to us. Come on, come on. Let the little children come to us. Where did they learn that from? Jesus, women, very little to no rights in the first, second, and third century. To which the church said, no, not on our watch. Men, love your wives, honor your wives. Women, come in among us, have a voice, be among us. You are equal with us. The church said, no. Social services. That's what we call it. That's not what they called it back then. But Rome would disregard the poor, the needy, as we call it, the least of these, Matthew 25. To which the church in the first 300 years said, no, no, no again. Let the poor be among us. In fact, we're going to serve the poor. And social issue after social issue, the church existed in the midst of a dark world and said, no, 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 there is a new politic in town. It is the politic of love. It is not upward mobility. It is downward mobility. It exists of humility. It exists of servanthood. It exists of love. And in 300 years, they converted Rome. The power of the people of God. Again, outside of the political realm. Here's my question to you, and I'm done. One question, one story, and I'm done. Keep your thinking caps on for just a moment. What would happen if the church simply decided to be the church. What would happen if Christians realized, listen, the kingdom of God doesn't manifest itself in the Republican Party. The kingdom of God doesn't manifest itself in a Democratic Party. And it doesn't matter who gets elected in November. Beloved, I hate to break it to you. The kingdom of God will not come on Air Force One. Yeah. 
So in light of that, what would happen if the church simply decided to be the church? What would happen if Christians finally realized how futile our political system is for true societal change and Christians just basically decided, you know what, yeah, we're going to support that as much as we need to. Yes, we're going to pray for governmental officials like we should. Yes, we're going to honor and respect them. The Bible says that. We're going to be good citizens. We're going to obey the law. Hello. We're going we're gonna to do all that stuff. But at the end of the day, our ultimate allegiance lies at the foot of a blood-stained cross where we've decided that our hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. What would happen if the church just simply decided to truly be the church? I told you one story and I'm done. Uh, Steve Jobs, CEO and founder of Apple, great leader, pretty hard-driving leader if you've seen some of the movies and read some of the books, but a great leader, no denying how, how his, his products made a big impact in this world. We don't really know where Steve Jobs landed at the end of his life. He, he died, by the way. He's passed on, and um, I think it was cancer. Um, and he, um, he gave him a powerful talk at Stanford, a commencement speech. If you haven't heard it, you might want to go online and listen to it. Pretty powerful. You're, you're listening to a man who is literally staring death in the face. And he's wrestling with his own mortality. Earlier in his career, as he was building Apple to the great enterprise that it was, he had his eyes set on a man by the name of John Scully. John Scully was an up-and-coming leader with Pepsi. And Steve Jobs kept trying to get Scully over and over and over to leave Pepsi and come to work with him at Apple. Steve is getting exasperated, he's frustrated, he's not getting anywhere with Scully. Scully says he's not leaving. And finally, as a last-ditch effort to get John Scully to leave Pepsi and come to work at Apple, Steve Jobs asked him this question, quote-unquote. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water? Or do you want to change the world? Scully said it was like a kick in his gut. He said he couldn't sleep at night, and he kept asking himself that question. And Scully would later say that was the question that caused him to leave Pepsi and go to work at Apple. Now, I hate to break it to Scully and Steve Jobs, who's not even on planet Earth anymore, that even though he created a great product, Apple products don't really change the world. They're great. I like them. But from an eternal perspective, this won't change the world. In fact, take out your phones. You're like, really? I can do that in church? Yes, take out your phones. Just, just promise you won't go to Facebook right now. <laughs> take out your phones. Everybody, guy, I want you to I want you, just get them in hand. Now, I want you to turn them on if they're not on. Go ahead and turn them on. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Unless you have a Samsung Galaxy. Leave that bad boy off. 
some of you are like, what's so funny? Dude, you need to watch the news more often. They're, they're blowing up, man. They turn them on, they blow up. They can't even be brought on airplanes anymore, man. Hey, um, can, you, can you guys turn off the lights at all the campuses, all, all the campuses? No flashlights on. Leave your flashlights on. But I see, I see some of your phones on. Um, <laughs> if, it's, if it's Jesus, tell him I'm doing the best I can. <laughs> the Bible says that Jesus is the light of the world. The Bible said, oh, that's creepy. Dude, dude, that, 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 for some reason that makes me think of Halloween right there. He said, you're the light of the world. He says, he says, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel so that the light is hidden. He says, no, no, after lighting a lamp... You put it on a lampstand so that it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In the same way, let your light shine before all men that they may what? See your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Campus pastors at, at all of our campus locations, go ahead and turn your flashlight on. Turn it on. Hold it up high. Now I want the rest of us in here. Just, just some of you are so eager to do it, you just can't stand it. <laughs> turn on your flashlights, y'all. Turn them on, turn them on, turn them on. Turn them on, turn them on, turn them Lift them up high, lift them up. Oh. Oh, my. Oh, my. Hold them up. Don't, don't put them down. Hold them up. What would happen if the church simply decided to be the church. To be a people called church in a dark and dying world, but committed to lifting high the light of Christ, pushing back the darkness and allowing Jesus Christ to illuminate this sin-scarred, broken world. That's the politic of the church. That's what Jesus came to initiate. That is why Jesus was crucified on a cross. And before he went there, he said, when you pray, hold it up high. When you pray, pray together saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us of our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom. And the power and the glory. Forever and ever and ever. Amen. 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 If you have any prayer requests or praises, we'd love to hear from you. Just email our pastors and staff at prayers at newhopenc.org, and we would love to pray for you.
If you'd like to support the ministries of New Hope, just stop by one of our campuses or visit us online at newhopechurch.org. We hope you'll join us next week for the podcast. And thanks for being a part of our church family.
Thanks for being a part of this week's podcast.